0: Welcome to Medsider, where you can learn from experienced medical device and medtech experts through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson.
1: Hey there, ladies and gents, just a few quick messages before we get started with this interview. First, if you're a fan of this podcast and have enjoyed listening to the episodes over the past five or six years, please do me a favor and go to the App Store and write a short review. It's a relatively simple thing to do, but it helps out a ton in terms of increasing the visibility of the Medsider podcast. Please do me a favor and do that when you get a chance second item on the list is in regards to podcast players. Now, if you're listening to this podcast on the native app on your iPhone, I would definitely encourage you to check out a different player. There's quite a few available. I personally am a fan of Overcast for a number of different reasons, but allows me to listen to podcasts at various speeds, along with a lot of other features. Now, Overcast is a paid app, but it's well worth it, believe me. So check out Overcast or any of the podcast players that are currently available. Third item, before we get started, is in regards to the audio quality. Now this, this upcoming interview is with Duke Roline, and it's really, really good. Duke is a fantastic medtech entrepreneur, and he's got a ton of valuable insights to share. But the first 20 minutes or so, we ran into some slight audio difficulties. So just bear with us while we get into the conversation. It'll be well worth it. Now, in regards to that, here are some of the topics or questions that Duke and I are going to cover. First, how Duke and his team at CV Ingenuity celebrated after selling to Covidian for approximately $300 million. Why the CV Ingenuity team pursued a U.S.-only strategy, which is uh, contrary to what most early-stage medtech companies do these days. Duke's previous relationships with the leadership at EV3, which is now part of Medtronic, and why those relationships were critical to closing the CV Ingenuity deal with COVIDian, how Duke secured a really unique $300 million collaboration with Merck while serving as president of Fox Hollow Technologies, and the major lessons Duke has learned raising money for four different early-stage medical device companies. There's a host of other things that we get into during this conversation, but again, bear with us through the first maybe 20 minutes or so. It will be well worth it. All right, so without further ado, here's Duke. Hello, everyone. It's Scott Nelson, and welcome to another edition of Medsider, the place where I interview proven medtech thought leaders and other healthcare industry experts. And on today's program, we've got Duke Rolene. And before we get into the conversation with Duke, let me provide a little bit of information in regards to his background. Currently, Duke serves as the chairman and CEO of Spyrox, as well as chairman and CEO of Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics. So he's, uh, he's running both companies, which we'll certainly get into later on in the conversation here. But pr- prior to, Spyrox and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics. Uh, Duke served as the founder and CEO of CV Ingenuity, which he sold to Covidian, which is now Medtronic, back in 2013 for approximately $300 million. Before founding CV Ingenuity, he spent some time at Fox Hollow Technologies, eventually becoming president, uh, took that company through an IPO and eventually sold it to EV3, which is also now part of Medtronic as well, for roughly about $800 million, and that was back in 2008. Duke received his MBA from Harvard and his BA from Stanford University, so he's got perspective from both coasts. Without further ado, Duke, welcome to the program. I appreciate you coming on.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a couple of your
1: past exits with CV Ingenuity and then Fox Hollow, and then we'll kind of fast forward to the present with Spirox and Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics. But with CV Ingenuity... I mentioned in the intro here that you sold it to Cavidian back in 2013 for roughly about $300 million, raised about $30 million in venture capital. So a huge win from anyone's perspective. And so if you think about when you got that deal done, you know all the due diligence was, was, was finished, board and investors have signed off. Do you remember how you celebrated that win with your team?
0: It was sort of a bittersweet moment for us because we had a bunch of employees that were really committed to growing this company for the long run and the engine was there so i think the people were actually surprised that we had decided to pull the trigger even though the exit value was high and the return on equity was high i think there was like i said a bittersweet moment where this family that we'd created and and it was a small family that had worked exceedingly just how we were able to move the company forward with such small amount of capital that family was, I think, going through excitement at the concept of, of monetizing an asset quickly, but also a little bit of trepidation about uh, what happens next and, and potentially the separation anxiety associated with uh, this with thing standing. We did have that meeting at the company and then we went out and we celebrated with a bunch of bottles of, of Duckhorn, which is the wine that Cavidian used as the uh, code name for our deal. So it ended up being great, obviously, but uh, there, there was a lot of there was a lot of, uh, of consternation amongst the employees as well.
1: That's cool. I love the story about, about Duckhorn. I think in my in my time at Cividi, and I, I do believe I remember hearing that name and did not realize what it was for. So that's a good story. Before we get into some of the some of the strategies that you guys employed in, in that in that successful exit. I want to ask you a question about the kind of that bittersweet moment. Is that something that you see more often than not in your experience in early-stage tech companies?
0: Yeah, I think mixed emotions come from just being galvanized, the whole engine being galvanized around doing something big and lofty and creating something that has real meaning. And these companies that get sold are sold because the acquirers see that there is tremendous opportunity not only with the technology but with the team so they want both but when you do that when you've created this engine of feeling you know of, of confidence and and capability there's worry about you know turning it over there's a new, you know to somebody else and letting them affect the outcome of that company there's concerns about you know the, the way that the senior management of my companies run it versus the senior management of some other company. There's an unknown there that's concerning. And there's, all, you know, just inherent to transition, there's there's fear, right? And so these people end up feeling like, gosh, I really liked what we had going with this small company. Am I going to still like that when I'm part of a bigger company uh, when this deal, when this deal transaction closed? So uh, de- there definitely is. And I think that nobody, part of a great company, feels great no matter what the price tag that you're getting for the company is nobody feels totally great about turning it over to somebody else
1: that's an interesting point i was just going to ask you about that i almost wonder if it's a sign of a really great culture and a lot of really good progress if, if everyone kind of on the team <laughs> describes their feelings as sort of bittersweet so yeah interesting that you make that comment
0: i think that you know the way that i think families work or the way that friends work the way that companies work is through transparency and as a company gets bigger, a lot of times transparency gets shut down because bureaucracy starts infiltrating an organization necessarily, right? We need to basically have the right amount of bureaucracy in order for a big company to scale. But the companies that I've run have had incredible transparency where everybody knows what we're doing. Everybody feels bought into a vision. and. So when you, when you start thinking about going to another company that's not going to have that, I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of concern. Transparency, to me, is our culture. Culture is the people. And that starts with me, obviously, and it goes to everybody. And I think that there's transparency, and that makes people feel good about the great things and also collectively unified around solving the problems of the challenging things. Right? People enjoy being empowered, and that's what the culture to me represents. They get concerned about that going away with big companies.
1: It seems like you read so much about culture, especially within you know startups these days. I mean, you're you're in the heart of Silicon Valley. there. so easy to read, you know, and maybe understand at a high level, but but much more difficult to <laughs> to sort of ingrain within a culture and, and a company. So that's cool that clearly, uh, obviously, you've been able to to do that with uh, with the companies that you've led. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Let's get on to some of the strategies that you employed, because like I said before, you know, you raised you know a, a pretty light amount of capital. And eventually sold CV Ingenuity for roughly $300 million to Cavidian. You know, that wasn't just luck, you know, luck of the draw or, or maybe good timing. You know, certainly maybe some of that. But is there a few strategies that you can think about that really, you know, maybe propelled you to another level faster? And maybe one of those is that I'm thinking of is, you know, doing research for, for our interview now. Is that you really focused on a, on a U.S.-only strategy from the from the very beginning versus a, an EU-only strategy, a Europe-only strategy, which I think is unique, especially for the era, the MedSec era that we're in right now.
0: It all comes down to making the vector towards value creation as straight and focused as possible. And, you know, so from inception, you have to say, okay, is the market big enough, the company could actually be a company, or are you building this thing to have huge opportunities in their single products and there's an ability to go after those products and be a standalone company? I would say Nebro is an example of that. And then there are other companies where the market's smaller. With CV Ingenuity, we recognized that there was an enormous need for a drug-coated balloon by all of these big companies, and we recognized that we weren't going to be first. So, okay, what is the value-driving capability of the technology? And we realized it wasn't the balloon, so we decided to go on the Evercross bootcamp committee, and we realized that it wasn't European sales or European approval, so we decided to forego any effort in Europe. Uh, aside from clinical work that we did in Europe with Germany in Germany and we decided that the the biggest play with the lowest hanging fruit in our the coronary space. So we completely alienated any efforts that uh, could have compromised our vector and went straight after the peripheral market in the US without any focus on anything outside of just the chemistry for the drug, obviously using the Evercross bullet. So we were very, very tight. What that did is allowed us to be very, very lean as a team. So we had a core group of people that were exceptional. I think Philippe Marco, who was the chief operating officer of that company, is is best in class in terms of his ability to, to do what he needed to do getting approvals, coming up with clinical strategy, regulatory strategy, enrollment, et cetera. Incredible. And then we worked really, really hard with that small group of people toward those endpoints. That'll enable us to, to, to be very focused, as I said, but then also focus saves a lot of money because you're not spending things on distraction. So Focus and, and, and cost savings helped us raise very little money, and then when you raise a little bit of money, you have a lot of room for arbitrage, right? So you can go and sell for three hundred million, or you could still get an incredible return on equity for, you know, one hundred and fifty million, which opens up the buyer universe. And by opening up the buyer universe, you end up with more offers. Which just by virtue of the fact that you have more people interested, um, even though some are at a lower price and some are at higher price you know inflates the value of the company
1: that framework that you utilize really focusing in on that one vector i think is really beneficial and probably is a a key learning point on that note did you feel like by ignoring the coronary market by kind of ignoring other regions you know europe included and just focusing on the peripheral market in the u.s did you feel like that was a risk how did you overcome you know balancing the fact that you wanted to just focus on that versus maybe some alternative paths that could have potentially worked out
0: I personally had just spent a long time at Fox Hollow, where we didn't have robust clinical data, and yet we had a, a very, very revolutionary technology uh, with with Silverhawk and an atherectomy. Uh, but my my whole mindset was towards clinical data, and I looked at the peripheral market and I said, Gosh, you know, look what happened with drug coated stents in the coronary market. You know, there was an enormous uptick based on clinical data that demonstrated utility. Uh, within nine months it had 80% of the, you know, 80% of the balloon angioplasty market, right? So my feeling was that the peripheral market, you know, and, and this is back in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of data that was still needed to drive utilization. And... Yet I felt if you had that data set you'd be able to get and command significant market share. So no, I never viewed it as a risk. I viewed it as a trade off for sure. But uh, I was very confident that with with clinical data you could go after, you know, a billion dollar peripheral market and make a, a huge inroad. Um, and, and, and I felt it was more of a race to, to be within, you know, a certain time frame of the leader which was Lutonix, and to show demonstrably better data. Um, And I felt that was the risk, not going after an isolated peripheral market.
1: I want to ask you a little bit about when the deal with Covidian came to fruition. But before we go there, I I remember reading about the fact that you basically manage your clinical your clinical trials internally versus, you know, that maybe the more common approach is working with an outside CRO. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and why you made that decision and whether or not it was effective?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it it turned out to be incredibly effective. There was, uh, you know, just like I was talking at the beginning of this conversation, Transparency is important and transparency establishes trust and trust establishes loyalty, right? And so what we did is we said, let's go get very, very good, high rolling physicians that trust us and they're gonna go the extra mile because not only are they getting paid well, but more importantly we nurtured and engendered incredible relationships every month and we started the trial. And then once we started the trial, we were able to actually enroll in this velocity in terms of enrollment. Why were we able to do that? We were able to do that because it was us who was actually dealing with not only the physicians, but the clinical staff. Some of the accountability and some of the personal um, loyalty goes away when that's outsourced. Um, so even when you get to doing a bigger clinical study, I think it's imperative that you know the principles of an organization... are are actively involved in in recruiting sites, are actively involved in managing uh, not only the physicians, working with those physicians, but also working with the clinical staff uh, because the clinical staff is obviously as important to have buy-in as the physicians who are actually doing the the procedures. So um, it it requires more work, but my my whole philosophy and my ethos about running these companies is people like to be part of success uh, and they're not afraid of hard work. Uh, more than they like to be, you know, underutilized. And so if you if you push these people, if they're doing more than they possibly can, they feel great, and, and as do I, or as does the, uh, the physicians. Um, it's the it's the lack of moment of of, of momentum. It's the lack of uh, tension in a line from a timing standpoint that I think causes some of these things to break down. And, uh, and so we, we you know we we focused on doing it ourselves, and I think it paid off in spades.
1: To be candid, I wouldn't have expected you to answer that question in that way, but after hearing you explain it, it makes a lot of sense, especially in regards to you know sort of empowering your your sites, your trial sites, to sort of get involved and feel like they're involved in what you're trying to accomplish as a team and as a company. So that's very interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to feel important, right? Yeah. And everybody is important if they're treated the right way. And I, I do believe that these relationships with the sites, when you think about the most important thing for CBI was a positive clinical study. So given that the most important thing was that positive clinical study, I I felt that the, you know, it was the best use of my time and Philippe's time to make sure that that study rolled quickly and perfectly, you know, and and I would never have uh, outsourced that to uh, anybody, no matter how good or good they were uh, from a CRO perspective. It's just too important for the mentality of the company.
1: Before we get into the timing around the deal that you did with Covidian, because I want to ask you about how your past relationships impacted that. Anything else that you want to mention in regards to, you know, how much you and your team were able to get done in four years? Any other, you know, strategies or, or, or tactics that you employ that would be valuable for the uh, audience to know about?
0: One of the things I think challenges small companies is the lack of focus, right? And the lack of focus a lot of com- times comes from answering to a lot of different Opinion. Someone will say, okay, I think you should be going into Europe. Or someone will say, I think you should be doing this or going to the coronaries. And, and I think that what we did is we raised our money. We raised the money from NEA. We raised the money from our individual investors before NEA with a very targeted approach. And that targeted approach allowed for buy-in, which took away a lot of questions or uh, the strategic discussion at the board level. Um, on a going-forward basis. We knew where we were going. Everybody was galvanized around that mission, and everybody worked incredibly hard to make sure it was realized without distraction. I think that's a critical piece of any small company. And if you look at the companies that spend a lot of money, look at companies in Spine, right? They, they, they've, tried, they've tried this. They've tried that. They've gone to Europe. they started commercializing in Europe. These things, you know, they all go back to a fundamental initiative, which is, are you building this to sell? Or are you building this to be a standalone company? And what is the fastest way to get there and the most cost-effective way to get there? But that alignment up front is critical, in my opinion, to be cost-effective.
1: That's a good little anecdote that you pursued investment money with that purpose in mind. So that's great. You mentioned NEA, and I know I remember reading a, uh, an article by, I think, Justin Klein, who led some of those rounds of investment with NEA. But he made a comment about how you know, you, you've done a fantastic job in building relationships at former companies and how that helped to sort of not only get the deal done, but, you know, get it done in a way that was a win for everyone. So can you speak about that and how some of those past relationships that you forged at EV3 and at Cavidian led to the eventual sale of CBI?
0: Companies are bought strategically, not opportunistically, meaning you don't go develop a company in a black hole and then hope to sell it to somebody when you have approval. What happens is you have a lot of dialogue. You have a lot of strategic discussions with a lot of companies and let them know what you're doing and when you're doing it, and then they can monitor how you do it, right? Are you effective at doing what you said you're going to do? When we sold Fox Hollow, that was how we did it, you know, I actually sat down with their CEO was Jim Corbett at the time, and, and from those initial discussions with Jim Corbett, I got to know Stacy, and I got to know the other people that were involved, including Warburg over at EV3. So then, when uh, when we sold that company, uh, it was never expected that I would stay at that company it was in my mind, and, and I was very clear about it that I was going to go and do something else. So I started to see the ingenuity, you know, during the during the diligence phase of the Fox Hollow deal. Remember when we talked about that drug could have moved? well I'm actually building a team that can go and, and create that and I'd love for you to follow us and because we were close at that point, because we have engaged in a lot of dialogues about where the peripheral vascular market was potentially the disruption that could come from drug coated balloons, she was very interested in understanding what I was doing. I think I also think she had some confidence in uh, in, in my team that we could pull off something as audacious as, as developing a drug coated balloon. So uh, you know, our, our our series A, our seed investment included money from from and That was all driven by, uh, it was it was actually EV3 at the time before they merged into Comedian. That was all driven by relationships that we had formed uh, as I was exiting Fox Hollow. So relationships are key, and I think one of the critical pieces, just like, you know, the CEO or the person who's driving strategy these companies has to be involved in, in the, uh, the, the high-value initiatives for CBI was the clinical enrollment. Uh, they also have to make it a priority to, to know personally the, the buyers, you know, to, to get to know them, to understand what they're thinking about and to are you there? Yep, yeah, I'm here. And to uh, you know and, and to engage them proactively, right? I probably met with Covidian or E V 25 times with I'm not kidding. Wow. Uh, maybe t- 20 times before we actually did the transaction, and Cavidian uh, knew what my endpoint was. They knew that I was going to sell the company at IDE approval, and uh, so they had a lot of time to do diligence on the company, understand what the opportunity was and uh, And so when, when I said, "Listen, I want to sell the company, and we're going to do it, uh, and you could be competitively advantaged if you go and, um, and move quickly they you know they responded uh, immediately. they also knew that optionality is what I completely subscribe to. You have to have options, and, so, and they know that. I, I was very transparent with, hey, listen, if you don't want to buy it, we're going to go sell it to somebody else, and there are a bunch of buyers that would want it. So either step up and step in at a big level or, or step out. There was a lot of confidence in my ability to communicate that.
1: The mantra of people buy from people, I mean, that, that applies, you know, even in this type of situation, right? They trusted you. They knew your experience. you had built a relationship over years. Well, clearly it, it impacted your success in uh, making that deal happen.
0: That's right. It also impacts, you know, Ryan Durant, who funded Ryan and Justin funded CV Ingenuity. And, and Ryan and I had gone to Stanford together and didn't know each other very well at Stanford. And then You know, Ryan had been involved and seen how we operated our companies at Fox Hollow, and he was a partner, right? Ryan was an investor, and Justin wasn't an investor. They were true partners in CV Ingenuity, incredibly value-added guys who are great investors, in my opinion, and great because they buy in and great because they add value. You know, they buy into... To this st- strategic direction because they think it makes sense, and then they add value on a going forward basis. But that relationship doesn't happen overnight either. You got to nurture that along so that they're ready to pull the trigger on on investing when it makes sense for them to do so.
1: That's a great perspective. I think that the takeaway is is uh, <laughs> is just like in, in all relationships, don't burn any bridges and really try to foster and take advantage of everyone you cross paths with as, as time goes along. MedTech's a yeah. small circle. <laughs> That's right.
0: Yeah. It is a very small world.
1: As I mentioned in the intro, you spent quite a bit of time at at Fox Hollow, led that company through an IPO, and then eventually sold it to EV3, as you mentioned earlier. You know, participated in a lot of interesting things, you know, partnership with Merck that I think was, I can't remember exactly the the deal size in that partnership with Merck that was, I think, fairly unique. You took that company through an IPO. You know, when you think about some of those deals that you uh, that you participated in and led at, at Fox Hollow, do a couple of those, you know, come to mind and, and any any takeaways that were valuable for you now or valuable for your time at, at C V I or C V Ingenuity?
0: One of the things that I take a lot of pride in is the deal we did with Merck. That was a deal that was unprecedented at the time, which is that we were taking out this plaque and we thought we could figure out a way to use the plaque to help understand disease process. Uh, after influenced by medicine. And so the concept was that you could get a baseline of, of, of disease uh, in one leg when you do atherectomy on one leg by taking that plaque out and doing analysis on that plaque. You could, you know, put, put a patient on medicine, and then when you go back and treat the, the diseased leg on the other side, because, you know, almost all patients have bilateral disease, you could see if the, if the medicine actually influenced the, um, the disease process. So it was a really novel idea, and it was very, um, it was it was just a big idea, right? And 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 so uh, what I learned about that is um, it just takes a lot of knocking on doors. You know, I sort of uh, with one other person, a woman named Angela Suida, who was in charge of regulatory at the company, we just started talking to companies and uh, and trying to sell them of this vision because I felt that, I felt that the vision made sense and. You know, and then we ended up doing this deal with Merck, and that deal became a you know multi-hundred million dollar deal with Merck ending up and buy, you know buying you know ten percent of our company. And so, what are the takeaways for me about that deal? I had complete conviction that there was value that was um, that could be realized from this transaction. So, as 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 I was flying all the way around the world a lot of times uh, and and selling this concept, uh, I knew it, I knew somebody should buy it. Somebody should engage in that. Again, it goes back to knowing with confidence that there's a value-added proposition associated with the efforts you're doing, and then being very, very tight about um, who could who could benefit from it, and then going after them. We ended up finding, you know, a group in, in Merck that was that had a very visionary approach to drug development and engaged uh, in a big way. The takeaway for me from that was, hey, listen, you gotta you gotta work pretty hard and you got to be pretty clear about the value proposition associated with working hard in order for you to get anything to happen. And it took a year. It took a lot of knocking on doors and a lot of failed ideas and potential meetings for that to happen. But it, it continued to uh, before we ended up getting that deal done. That was one. The second one was uh, I look at the sale of the company. You know, we were at this time at this inflection point as a company where uh, we either needed to become an aggregator company by buying other com- uh, other other companies. You know, we had looked at the life stint. We'd looked at Invatec out of Italy. And uh, the feeling was we either needed to leverage our distribution channel uh, or we needed to sell to some other company. We were at the size where it was hard to sell a company because, you know, we, we had a lot of money in the company at that point. And uh, I think the, uh, the lesson for me was uh, if you're going to be a single product company, and if you're going to be public, uh, you better have a pipeline, and um, that in that in that revenue line better be stable. I think that we found uh, a, a, a great buyer in EV3, and I think actually EV3's ultimate acquisition by Kikavidian um, uh, was uh, in large part. Uh, attributed to the industrial logic of having atherectomy at with their ballooning stent lines. Um, so I think that the ultimate vision of, of, of having a multi-product company that leverages an infrastructure was realized. I, I would say that I think Fox could have done it if we had thought about being an aggregator company, but uh, we weren't organized as an organization to be that kind of company from inception, which I think is the company you have to be able to, do that well if you're going to become a standalone company.
1: Back to your example with Merck real quick, if I understand that right, I presume you got a lot of no's as you were pitching that, that proposition, but the underlying, as you mentioned, the underlying conviction that, that were, there was true value, there was true clinical value for at, at the core of that concept sort of led you to keep keep knocking on those doors despite the, the no's. Is that fair to say?
0: That's absolutely right. So I was working with uh, some great scientists, a guy named Tom Kateramos over at Stanford, a guy named Ewan Ashley over at Stanford. And we knew that there was a lot of rich data in the plaque, you know, and uh, and we knew that plaque should be influenced by drug. And if we could basically measure that influence or not, it would have tremendous value for companies that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get an outcomes-based study complete, right? And so if you can know it's going to influence positively a disease process uh, early, which is what we were trying to demonstrate, wow, it's worth an enormous amount of money. And that's where you know, that's where I felt very confident when we structured that $300 million deal with Merck. I felt very confident in saying, hey, listen, this is worth $300 million, even though we are basically – selling them the stuff that we were taking out of the bodies to throw away. So it, it was um, it was that confidence that gave me the ability to, to negotiate a strong deal. Let's
1: fast forward to the present time. So you're currently, I'm not sure if this will resonate with our audience. I consider you as the Jack Dorsey of MedTech. You know, you're running two companies at the oh. same time. Jack is running Square and, and Twitter, for those that are listening and, and aren't familiar with him, but I'm not sure if that's a fair description, but I'll leave it at that. Let's fast forward and talk a little bit about your experiences at Spyrox, as well as uh, ACT advanced cardiac therapeutics. So you recently raised a series C for Spyrox. So congrats on that. I think it was a, I think I read a, a around $45 million, uh, series C. So, uh, congrats on that. Um, when you think about your, your experiences and I guess I want to, I want to contrast that with, I, I believe you also structured a deal with Abbott for ACT back in, I think 2014, that was more of a corporate venture collaboration where they, I'll leave it for you to describe that, but maybe compare and contrast the two in regards to your experiences, raising money for early stage companies.
0: Well, I think that they're very different. So Firehawk is a technology for the ear, nose, and throat space. Uh, you're right. We did raise money from our insiders. So we had Venrock. We had Aperture involved. We had WTI involved. And then we brought in Aisling and KKR. And so we have a, a very strong syndicate. Unlike most medical device companies, we, we have about $60 million in the bank. So we've spent about $10 million to get where we are and have a lot of money in the bank. Um, and we're... You know, were approved to start selling the products. It's a very different paradigm. It's a different world right now, where capital risk is is a is a significant risk for companies. And so I thought, let's just take out that capital risk by bringing in the money that we need to get to you know, a hundred plus million dollar revenue company and bring in a group like KKR and and the other syndicates that are involved in the deal that give us flexibility to make moves, make moves to either buy a company or to build a company the right way without having to worry about short-term, you know, short-term responses. So it's, to me, optionality and reducing capital risk is a critical part of of being a med tech CEO. The Abbott deal was the same thing. Advanced Cardiac Therapeutics was a company that I've known and followed for a long time. They had gone, sort of run out of business. They'd run out of money and were, were looking at shutting down the company. Uh, I called up Justin, who's a friend of mine, and said, let's go and recapitalize that company because I think there's a lot of interesting um, uh, room to grow that company. And, uh, and we did it. And so we, we took advantage of a lot of good work that had been done. Uh, and, and, and raised seven million dollars, and it just so happened that Merck, that sorry, Abbott was putting together uh, this sort of this, this constellation of companies that was going to be the basis of their their EP franchise. And they looked at Topira, and they looked at Petronas and they looked at ACT. And so um, it made sense for us to not take venture money from them, but to give them the opportunity to buy the company. So they 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 they, they put. know less than 30 million dollars into the company uh without any equity rights they basically just got the option to acquire the company and um and uh and the acquisition trigger point became ce mark so what that did was effectively gave us a straight vector to what the value creation inflection point was And for us it was okay build this to ce mark approval right and show that it works in humans and then you get paid. So we took out all market risk. We took out all capital risk with them and made it a straight shot execution play. And then I was able to build an incredibly good engine to do that. Spyrox have an incredibly good engine too. It's a different play, right? So we have big investors that have a lot of money. And so we are going for a big company there. Um, But the differences in the model allow for me to actually manage effectively both companies. You know, Spyrox has got a great team. ACT has got a great team, but ACT is focused on CE mark and sell, whereas Spyrox is focused on growing a company that can, that can hopefully be a publicly traded company that has multiple products you know, in the next three to four years.
1: That's two completely, almost completely different paths. So that's very interesting, and I can see why you'd say that it allows you to kind of effectively manage both because of the clear shot to the goal, I guess, uh, with ACT versus what you're trying to do with Spyrock. So, before we end our conversation with a, a couple rapid-fire questions, what is your general advice for those for those early-stage founders or or you know folks that are at, at early-stage companies that that are raising money or or either need to raise money and maybe don't have the the reputation that you have. Do you have any advice in regards to raising it with traditional venture capital investors or corporate corporate venture arms?
0: I look at companies as three parts equally important. I look at a technology part as being a third. You have to have a technology that addresses an unmet need that that has reimbursement that uh, can get clinical data and can can come to market in a time frame and with a cost allocation. The cost to get it to time you know to market that makes sense. Right. If it takes you 20 years to develop something, the market's going to move beyond you. So there needs to be like a a period of time that that works. That's complemented. That technology is complemented by two things, a team. And and what is the team? The team is not just just the technology people that build it. The team is the people that are required to build, to, to develop on a business plan. Right. So that could be the venture guys. That could be a private equity group that could be Uh, You know, advisors. That could be, if you're going into a highly political uh, industry, it could be people that represent political um, persuasion. But the third piece has to be that business model. And so you have to have a business model that says not that we're going to be able to sell this amount of product to get this amount of revenue. You have to be able to say, this is how we're going to get equity returns for for the investors. So when you look at it as this whole, you have Three contributing factors. You have a business model, which has to be sound and clear, right? Are you building a product for to sell or are you building a company to last? Uh, two, you have to have a great technology that facilitates that. And three, you have to have a team that's, that's all comprehensively uh, oriented to around, you know, to that business model. I think a lot of mistakes are made when people just focus on the technology, right? We're going to mm-hmm. build this technology because, and there's not a lot of business strategy around that. So that's that's the thing. The second thing is that you have to be capital efficient. Uh, you know, you just look at all of the roadkill that's on the side of, of of the roads from the last 10 years of medical device investing. It's given this space an incredibly bad name, and it's because you it's because they've spent a lot of money and they've they don't have a lot to show for it. And it's not because of anything other than um, I think changed business plans so I think you have to be incredibly capital efficient. Capital efficiency requires trade-offs and trade-offs allow you to, you know, trade-offs are, are based on creativity. So you have to be creative and capital efficient with early money in order to be able to track later stage money. And then a third thing I was going to say is you have to have an ace in the hole. And the ace in the hole for me is somebody who knows without question, um, uh, everything about that technology, everything about that space and can give you competitive advantage over somebody else who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And every one of my companies has at least one employee, if not two or three that ha- are what I call ace in the holes. you know? So I work with the best and the brightest in order to make sure that we're, we're nailing what we want to do. But I think if you nail those three things, um, you have a chance, right? And then things have to break your way in order for it to work out.
1: Three really, really good takeaways in regards to, you know, raising money for, for early stage companies. So let's real quick, before we run out of time, get to the last three questions, which is sometimes my favorite part of these conversations. So first Duke, what's your favorite nonfiction business book?
0: So I have two, um, I have a book, I I love Stephen Covey's book. I think that Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I know every one of those habits. I've read those books maybe 20 times. I think they're phenomenal. I have them on tape, et cetera. I think that's the best nonfiction business book I know. And you can actually characterize all other books and what these, these business guys have done into those habits if they've been successful, and it, it's really true. I also read a book about five years ago. It, it, it's about this guy, Peter Barton, who founded Liberty Media. He ended up dying of cancer, but his book was Don't Fade Away, and um, it's an incredible book about his life and lessons and balancing family, work, and career, Uh, Aspirations, and uh, those are my two favorite books.
1: So is there another CEO or business leader that you're following right now?
0: My favorite CEO is uh, Bezos from Amazon. He basically lives by the philosophy of attack, attack, attack. You know, let's keep going, keep going, keep going. He thinks big. He invests the right amount of money. He's grown a company that's profitable and that's just taking over the world. He's not in the med tech sector, but he's a guy that I think is extraordinarily bright and has... Uh, It combined beautiful strategy and vision with unbelievable execution.
1: And then lastly, when you think about the course of your medtech career, if you could rewind the clock a little bit and give some advice to your 30-year-old self, what would that be?
0: So one time when I was at Fox Hollow, uh, a board member who, I don't know if he liked me or didn't like me, but he told me I was impetuous but honest, competitive but convivial. And I didn't really even understand what most of those words meant (laughs) at the time. But I wrote it down because I thought it was really interesting. I knew it was not a positive thing, and, and I rejected it once I went and looked up those words. When I thought he was dead wrong, I think he was dead right, which is, you know, I think you have to be impetuous, you have to be honest, I think you have to be competitive, but you also have to be friendly, and you have to do it in a way that makes people want to continue to work with you, because it is based on relationships. At the end of the day, you got your, your integrity, and you have your uh, your relationships, and and those will attract people that allow you to be successful. You've got to be competitive. You've got to push hard. And you've got to attack, attack, attack. So I would advise myself to, to continue to be aggressive as my, as my 30-year-old self.
1: Very good. That's good stuff. So I know you got to get going, Duke. But thanks again for your willingness to do this interview.
0: Hey, thank you, Scott. And look forward to being in touch.